Uh, maybe you haven't been in the last three weeks. I actually, um, three weeks ago, returned from a six-month sabbatical. Um, so it could be that you've actually been around, but you still have not seen me up here. Um, so just in case, I'm, I'm Pastor Jason. It's good to be back. It's good to see you all. Uh, last week, we started a new sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes uh, is in the Old Testament, and it's part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And here's the deal with wisdom literature. The purpose of wisdom literature is to help bring our lives into alignment with God's good intent. Its purpose is to help us successfully navigate life. And that's no different um, as we come here to the book of Ecclesiastes. Last week in the first sermon of the series, we met the preacher. And the preacher is the main speaker here in Ecclesiastes. And the way I framed it last week is that I said that he is basically going to act as our tour guide over the next uh, several months. He's going to act as our tour guide, walking us through life, um, walking us through even the hard spaces of life, some of those places, those spaces that we would prefer not to go, where we prefer not to be. He's going to force us to reflect on some of the big questions of life as we reflect on the world, as we reflect on people, places, and things. And I said this last week, and I just want to say it again so that we're clear. Uh, the preacher is not a cynic. Um, he's not somebody who is writing these reflections because he's entrenched in cynicism. Uh, he's also not an unbeliever who is writing maybe to help, um, maybe pretending to be an unbeliever, to help those who are outside of the faith to realize that if they follow through in their worldview, this is where it will lead them. I don't, I don't think that's the case with the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and he is not a lapsed believer, we could say. He's not somebody who, as he's writing these reflections, is distant from God, who maybe is writing unorthodox things about the faith. None of those things are true about the preacher. The preacher is a representative of God who speaks to the people of God. In other words, what he says in this book is orthodox. It's real. And what we could say is that he speaks about what is true of reality as we actually encounter it in life. As I said, he's willing to go, go to places where talk about things that even make us uncomfortable. Uh, in fact, uh, Zach Eswine, who has written a book on Ecclesiastes, it's called Recovering Eden, he says this of God through the book of Ecclesiastes, God intends to reveal himself as the one who goes there. God is willing to go there. He's willing to go to hard places. He's willing to raise difficult questions to help us think about life well. So let me read our passage for this morning. Uh, we're in chapter 1 still, and we're looking at verses 12 through 18. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. 
and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open the word of God to us this morning. Open the word in such a way that you would sweep our stories up into the story that your word tells. I pray that you would do that wherever we might find ourselves right now. Some of us are believing in your word, Jesus. Others of us, uh, not so much. And still others of us are maybe confused and not sure of what we believe. We pray that regardless of where we are, that you would sweep our stories up into yours. Pray this in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Do any of you remember the story from 2018 when um, a soccer team in Thailand, um, 12 boys and their uh, coach, who was in his 20s, got trapped in a cave? Do you remember this story? I was reminded of it um, the other night because I watched a movie based on these events um, called 13 Lives. Um, and I had forgotten a lot of the details, and I realized that in watching this and in going back and reading some about it, that I was never aware of some of the details surrounding this heroic um, mission, this quest, this search to find the boys and get them out of the cave. What happened was, uh, after soccer practice one day, they decided to go into this cave. Shortly after, uh, a heavy rain came and flooded the cave system so that they were trapped deep inside of it. To make matters worse, monsoon season came early and it began to rain heavily every day, just making matters worse. Um, this turned into a huge search and rescue operation involving over 10,000 people. Seriously, over 10,000 people um, all doing their best to try to figure out a solution. Um, Finally, divers did make their way uh, to the boys in the cave. Now, the, these, this diving mission, the, these things were incredible. Um, it was hours to get to the boys where the boys and their coach were. They were um, all the way in the back of the cave, on, unfortunately on an elevated area of the cave. But every time the divers would, would go to them, um, it would take hours both ways. And they would have to swim through dark and muddy waters, um, through these passages that they could barely even get their shoulders through. I mean, these are places like, as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm just, I have that feeling like, oh my goodness, like I can't imagine that. That is not somewhere I want to go. It's not a place I want to be. But these divers did all of this um, for the success of this mission. Similarly, as we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher here, as I said last week and again this morning, is taking us on a journey. He's inviting us into his reflections on his own life story, his own life journey. And what he's going to do, we already saw this some last week, we're going to see it again, you probably heard some of it even as I read the passage for us. He's going to take us through some really dark passages of life. Uh, he's going to take us to hard spaces. 
He's going to raise really big, difficult questions, the questions that sometimes we would rather not have to think about or deal with. The preacher is going to examine life from multiple angles and, and multiple perspectives. And there are going to be times where his reflections are really confusing to us, just like our reflections on life are oftentimes really confusing. And guess what? We don't know, unless you've read the book of Ecclesiastes and you're familiar with it, but at least where we are now in chapter one, we're going to pretend at least that we don't know where this is going to take us. You know, in the same way that those divers rescuing the boys when that that first time that they finally made it that far back into the cave and as they came up on the boys they were not sure what they were going to find whether the boys would be dead or alive similarly we we don't know where this journey is taking us we're going to find out but and, and this is one of the hard things about the book of ecclesiastes is that the punchline really comes at the end of the book where things are I wouldn't say tied up neatly for us, but at least they're tied up. But to get there, we're going to have to go through some confusing, some hard uh, spaces. In other words, it's kind of like real life. This journey, because this journey that we're on with the preacher of Ecclesiastes, remember, he's inviting us into his reflections on life. This isn't some fake life. This is real life. And as we've already seen, and we're going to see, it's life as we know it. So this morning, we're going to reflect um, on what the search to make sense of life shows us um, about ourselves and about life. And the first thing that I want us to see here is that the search to make sense of life is human. The search to make sense of life is human. Now, as we focus in on verse 12, I want you to notice that there is a shift in perspective here. The voice changes. Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes started with the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So verse 1, the, there is a narrator who is introducing us to the preacher, who's going to be the main speaker. And then as we come to verse 12, the, that speaker, the preacher, begins to speak himself. He begins to speak directly. So there's this personal shift here. Now what we're encountering is something more personal than verses 1 through 11. And this is going to continue to be the case all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes until we get to the final seven verses of the book when that narrator is going to then step in again and give us a summary of the preacher's reflections that we went through together. So there's this personal shift starting in verse 13. And what we can do here is we can observe that while the search to make sense of life is common to us all, it's also really, really personal. That's always the case. It's always really, really personal. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, last week we got into a little bit of who is the preacher, um, And there are different views. Um, The traditional view is that it's Solomon. Others think that maybe it's um, a king or a wise person writing from the perspective of Solomon. Um, It doesn't matter who this, uh, the the identity of the speaker is. Um, What matters is that what this preacher is introducing us to is true and real about life. 
And so what he's doing here is he, this is where he's really inviting us into his personal reflections. He's setting forth his personal journey now in the context of the drama of life as a whole. He reflects back on his journey here. So this is kind of him, you know, like looking at his journey as a whole and offering some some thoughts or reflections on it here at the beginning uh, of sharing the reflections with us. And in verse 3, part of the passage that we looked at last week, very poignantly, the preacher asked this question, what do humans gain by all, the toil at, by all the toil at which they toil under the sun? In other words, what is the point of our work? Not simply our vocation, what we do for a job, although that would be included, but our efforts. What, do we, what, what shows from our efforts to try to master or control life? Um, that word... Um, Gain. It, it, it literally means uh, to leverage. And so he's asking this question, what do all of our efforts to try to figure life out, what, what leverage do they actually give us? What ability do they actually give us to master life and to con- have control over it? This is a personal journey. He's, he's not asking this abstractly. abstractly. He's not asking this simply as an an intellectual. He's asking this as a human being. He's speaking from the heart. He's being really authentic here. Verse 13, he says, I applied in my heart. Verse 16, I said in my heart. These words, what they're capturing are that he was devoted to this search. This was something that he was personally all in on. He was devoted to it. It's deeply personal. It's not just an exercise of the mind. The heart in the the biblical story references the center of our being. So that this personal journey he's on, this search to make sense of life, is, is coming from the core of who he is. These are personal reflections in which we're we're, we're, we're getting glimpses of his inner world. So it's intensely personal. It's the same way in our own lives. We wrestle with the big questions of life all the time. Like sometimes this happens subconsciously. We don't even know we're doing it. It's part of what it means to be human, right? We're always trying to connect dots. We're always trying to Um, make meaning, find meaning in what's going on in our lives. Why did this happen? What could this mean? Um, We we, we wonder about, okay, who exactly are human beings? Who is God? Is there a God? Um, What's wrong with the world? How's it made right? These are questions that we are wrestling with pretty much on an everyday basis, even in those moments when we're not fully aware of it. And sometimes, you know, maybe we begin a search simply for intellectual purposes or reasons. But what I want to suggest to you is that pretty much all the time underlying that are personal reasons. Because the desire to figure life out, the desire to make sense of life is always deeply and intensely personal. And you know this. You know when you're wrestling with those big questions of life, even if you try to convince yourself it's just an intellectual exercise, you're trying to distance yourself from really feeling it, it's impossible. You feel it. 
These questions are questions that are arising from the inner core of who you are. It's part of what it means to be human. So what did the preacher devote his heart to? What was this search? Well, verse 13, to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Verse 17, to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So he's tipping us off here that he's devoting himself to a search, to a quest. What is that search? What, what is this investigation that he's beginning? It's an investigation, he tells us, of all that is done under heaven. This is a comprehensive search. The scope of his investigation is all activity on earth. He's trying to figure out it all. He's trying to get that vantage point in life in which he can maybe see everything, look at human activity and everything that takes place in the world and maybe be able to connect dots and come to a conclusion about how it all makes sense and how it all ties together. This is his search. To make sense of it all, he's trying to figure life out. He's trying to understand reality as he experiences it. And he's trying to do it by looking at every angle imaginable, every perspective that you could think of. You know, that you, you heard it when I read it. He, you know, he's looking at wisdom, but also folly. Wisdom's opposite, because maybe by focusing in on the opposite of wisdom, that will reveal some conclusions to him that will be helpful. This is a comprehensive search to make sense of life. We all do this. Now, some of us, like, I don't want to project myself on you. I, like, I'm a, I shared this maybe last week, I think. Like, I tend to be a very deep thinker. Um, I could be in the most ordinary moment, and if you, you know, sometimes Katie will say to me, what are you thinking about? And I don't give her honest answers all the time, because I feel like if I tell her, she's going to think I'm insane. Well, I'm just trying to figure life out and the whole meaning of the universe right now. I'm exaggerating, but sometimes that's pretty much what I'm doing, trying to make sense of life. I'm in deep reflection, so I don't want to project that that's you all the time, but to some degree or another, we all do that because it's part of what it means, as I've said, to be human. It's built into us to connect, God, connect dots to make sense of life. Um, Steve Jobs, who was co-founder of Apple, he passed away in 2011. Um, his biographer, uh, Isaac or Walter Isaac, Isaacson, um, tells about how Jobs really struggled with the meaning of life toward the end of his, his life. Um, he began to wrestle with, or at least, um, you know, talk about some of the deeper questions of life in a way that he hadn't before. Uh, Isaacson says this, I remember sitting in his backyard in his garden one day, and he started talking about God. He said, sometimes I believe in God, sometimes I don't. I think it's 50-50 maybe. But ever since I've had cancer, I've been thinking about it more. And I find myself believing a bit more. I kind of, maybe it's because I want to believe in an afterlife that when you die, it doesn't just all disappear. The wisdom you've accumulated, somehow it lives on. 
Why was Jobs asking these questions? Because he's human. He can't help but to ask these questions. We can't help but to ask these questions. And notice how he says, but ever since I've had cancer. In other words, something intensely personal came into his life and it was causing him in a very, in a more intentional and deep way to examine these questions, maybe from perspectives and angles that he hadn't before. Like, for all of us, as we go through life, as we um, get a little bit older in life, um, even as kids, like kids, you know, ask big questions of life sometimes. Who taught them how to do that? Well, maybe you did, but nobody taught us to do that um, to an extent. It's part of what it means to be human. We are meaning makers. We must try to connect dots. We must try to figure things out. We must try to make sense of life. The search for making sense of life is personal. And so, what I, before we move on to the next point, what I want to maybe suggest to you is that you take some time to figure out or, or to look at where you are in life. What, what are some of the very personal things that have happened to you? And how is it that those personal realities uh, or maybe, maybe have or in the moment are, are kind of shaping how you come at some of those big questions of life. Because I, I think this is, this is so helpful. It's so important for us to recognize that this is always a personal search for us. It's not simply intellectual or abstract. And as we begin to go below the surface and ask some of these questions of what has happened in my life or what is happening that's causing me to ask these questions right now, or to ask them in the way that I'm asking them, or to provide the answers that I'm providing, it's really helpful for us to recognize that this search is always personal. For example, it could be that you are in a place in your life where you don't believe in God, or you do believe in God, but you hate Him. Maybe because it's of really hard things that have happened to you or are happening to you. I've been there. But what can happen is if we lead an unexamined life, if we're not thinking, if we're not reflecting, we subconsciously, passive-aggressively sometimes, um, maybe refuse some questions or we ask the big questions of life, but the answer that we're providing is bent. It's bent because we're in a place where we are just so cynical that all we can see is cynicism, right? You know what I'm talking about? And it's helpful for us to go below the surface, to examine our hearts, our lives, our circumstances, to give some thought to, well, what's actually causing this? What's causing me to reach this conclusion about God or about life? And is it actually the right conclusion? Am I, am I skipping over some stuff that might help the answer come out a little bit differently? Might it help me to see that life is more complex and fuller and that maybe there's, there's something that God is up to here that I'm just unaware of or right now because of my cynicism unwilling to see? The point being that the search for making sense of life is always personal. But the search to make sense of life is also frustrating. How does the search go for the preacher of Ecclesiastes? 
Well, verse 13, he tells us, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. This phrase, unhappy business, it it literally means something like a troubling or burdensome task, a work of affliction, a burden imposed on us by God. What's he talking about? I mean, that seems like really bold, like borderline unorthodox. This is one of those places with the preacher. It's like, wait, you're a representative of God speaking to the people of God. You better be careful here. Don't go too far. Sure sounds like, I mean, another translation is bad or evil. So it is an evil thing that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now, that word, um, it doesn't mean evil or bad in the way that we think of it. Rather, what it's referring to is some kind of calamity has happened. We are living in a world that is tragic, and we are up against something real and powerful that unless we are willing to recognize and understand, it's going to impair our ability to live wisely in the world. He says, in that... um, That same verse, he says, or right after it, or right before it, it's in that verse. There we go. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. That phrase, children of man, it literally means the sons and daughters of Adam. So I think it's quite clear what the intention of the preacher is here. He wants to take us back to the beginning. He wants to take us back to the beginning of the biblical story. And he he wants us to have some categories that we find there that will help us as we think about these things. And as we go back to the beginning of the biblical story, we, in chapters one and two, we encounter a world of harmony. It's the way things are meant to be. Humanity's in right relationship with God, right relationship to themselves, right relationship to one another, right relationship to the actual physical creation, their environment that they are in. It's shalom, the way things are meant to be, flourishing, harmony, peace. But in Genesis chapter 3, the biblical story tells us that something tragic takes place. Human beings decide that they're going to attempt to get some leverage. This is the language of Ecclesiastes, like the original sin was the toil that actually the preacher's talking about here in Ecclesiastes. It's this thinking that if we do something, if we work hard enough, if we put effort in, we can somehow gain leverage and put ourselves in the place of God or at least be equal to God to be able to define good and evil in our own way. It's the original sin, the first sin an attempt to gain leverage to try to master control over life in a way that God didn't grant to us. Life was not meant to work that way, and so tragedy ensues. There's now brokenness in relationship to God, brokenness in relationship to self, brokenness in relationship to others, and brokenness in the way that we relate to our physical environment. And that leads us to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, or chapter 3, Genesis 3, verse 17, where God responds to all of this. Now, he says a lot, but one thing that he specifically says is, cursed is the ground 
because of you. Here it is. This is what the preacher has in view. This is what the preacher is coming back to. What is the unhappy business that God has given to humanity? What is the painful affliction? What is the uh, troubling or burdensome task? It's the curse. It's the curse of sin. And so this search that the preacher is on, it doesn't go well for him. It doesn't end well for him. It leads to frustration. And one of the reasons for that, he's highlighting for us here, that there's some kind of pervasive brokenness in life that he keeps rubbing up against and he can't get beyond. Verse 14 says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. Behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Remember last week, if you were here, that word translated as vanity um, appears 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it literally means vapor or breath. It's meant to bring to mind the picture of something fleeting and elusive. Um, It's used in many places to refer to a wisp or puff of air that disappears, a mere breath. So imagine human beings running around trying to catch smoke or vapor. Like it kind of brings like a foolish picture to mind. Well, that's exactly what the preacher of Ecclesiastes has in mind. It refers to the inability in the end to ultimately make sense of life. He adds, it's a striving after the wind. It's a chasing after the wind. In other words, given the broken nature of reality, we cannot find the meaning of life within this world itself. We can't make sense of life on our own. And that leads him to this parable of sorts in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. There's something fundamentally wrong with life on earth. The world is crooked. It's twisted. It's broken. Something is lacking or missing. There's a vacuum, and we can't make it right. We can't fill it in, no matter how hard we might try. Are you able to honestly acknowledge the brokenness of life? And I don't know where you're coming from this morning. It could be that you're outside of the Christian faith and you just have never been able to um, take seriously the faith because it all just seems outrageous to you. But I, I hope that if you're here this morning, you'll continue to come and join us in this journey throughout the book of Ecclesiastes because what I, want you to, what I want to point out for you is that the preacher is not talking about some spiritual world out there. He's not talking um, about make-believe. He's talking about life in this world as we know it. And he's trying to offer us wisdom or help us to, to look wisely at things. And what he wants us to be honest about is that there is a fundamental reality about life in this world that is just broken, Things do not work the way that they were intended. And we encounter this, we experience it every day of our lives. There's going to be something you do today that's going to frustrate you. 
And maybe you won't use these words, or maybe you will because I'm saying it in the sermon, but you're going to say something like or think something like, ugh, it's not supposed to be that way. It's not supposed to work that way. Brothers and sisters, this is us bumping up against a true reality of life that things are not the way they're meant to be. There's a fundamental brokenness that's there. And here's the humbling part. No matter how hard we try, we can't make it right. No matter how hard we try, we can't fill in that void inside of us, that vacuum with something that will last. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we can't make anything in this world better. For example, we can reduce crime. We can reduce poverty. I mean, that's happened, right? In many instances throughout the history of the world, things like crime and poverty have been reduced. But those things have not been eradicated. And I want to suggest to you that they never will be eradicated, unfortunately, this side of the new heavens and the new earth, because we are incapable of doing such things. Now, I don't want to go off on a tangent here. We're going to see throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, I mentioned last week that some translations of that phrase, everything is vanity or everything is meaningless, I think that's so unhelpful because it's not what the word means. The point of Ecclesiastes is that actually that life is full of meaning. We just can't figure it all out. And so, as far as meaning goes, we are called by God to join him in the renewal of all things, to work, to reduce, we we should work to eradicate these things. I just don't think that it's ever going to happen because the world is fundamentally a broken place. Zach Eswine, in his book that I referred to earlier called Recovering Eden, says that to enter the book of Ecclesiastes is to take a sobering 10th century tour of once Eden has now become. Eden is that garden that the first humans were in. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes in many ways is about. It's a tour of how badly things have gone wrong. And I would, I would, I would say this to you that, you know, the book of Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think included in that is recognition that things are not the way they're meant to be. Recognition that we live in a world, to use the language of the Bible, that is cursed is the beginning point of wisdom. We, we can't actually mature in wisdom if we deny that fundamental reality about what is true and what we actually experience every day. In verse 16, the preacher gives his credentials, and they're impressive, aren't they? I have acquired great wisdom surpassed all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Wow, brag much? But he's actually not being full of himself here. He's actually in a place of real humility. Because what he's saying is that, look, like, I'll admit, I have a lot of wisdom. I know a lot of stuff. And if anybody could successfully complete this search to make sense of life, it would be someone like me, but I can't. I was unsuccessful. So if not the preacher, then who? He's humbled. He's frustrated. And that's where this search often leads us. It it, inevitably leads us to a place of frustration. 
because we just can't make sense of it all. No matter how hard we try, no matter how many dots we connect, we just can't get that comprehensive vantage point that allows us to make sense of absolutely everything. And this is a place in our spirituality where I think we need to be humble. Because sometimes as Christians, maybe you've even been thinking this in the sermon. Well, yeah, but in Christ, we actually do know the meaning of life. Yes, but you aren't able to make sense of life completely. Like, I'm, a, I'm in Christ as a follower of Jesus. I'm a pastor, and I can't tell you why the hurricane hit Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic and didn't go around it. I can't tell you that. I can't answer those questions and many more like that. Some of, like, I'm a pastor, right? And I've pastored some of you. I've sat across from you and I've wanted so desperately to be able to tell you why certain things are happening in your life and I can't. It's frustrating. It's frustrating for you more so, but for me, but then I deal with that stuff in my own personal life. It is frustrating because we can't make sense of life. It's okay to admit that. And that kind of brings us to the end here. The, the play, so wisdom is recognizing that there's this fundamental broken reality in life that we rub up against, not just out there, but inside of us. That inhibits our, 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 our ability to complete this search successfully. We're bent. Like we're, we're so often bent toward the wrong things, and so we don't see what we're supposed to see. Or we don't give our lives to what we're supposed to give our lives to because we're, we're, we're bent internally. It's not just that the world around us is bent. We too are bent. But where the preacher of Ecclesiastes is going to lead us, this is so, it's so hard to preach this book because like, you want to journey with him, but it's like, I can't end the sermon here. I know we're not to chapter 12 yet, but I can't end the sermon here, right? You're like, I don't know. You tell us. <laughs> I can't. I won't. Because the reality is we have the context of the full picture of the biblical storyline. We have the context of the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole. The reason that he's bringing us to this really hard space, this passage in the cave, so to speak, the one that we, like, we're trying to fit through, but we just reached that point where we realize, I'm not getting through this crevice. I just can't. I don't have the expertise. I don't have the ability. It actually is not possible. That's actually a freeing place to be in life. And this really is the point or the theme of Ecclesiastes. Because guess what? You don't have to know it all. You don't have to have it all. You don't have to be it all. And the good news actually goes further. You, this is good news because you can't know it all, you can't have it all, and you can't be it all. And it's okay. Learning to live as a creature, a human being, but a creature who is dependent on God is what we were made for. That is the good life. That is true life. And all of our attempts to try to gain leverage, to, to make ourselves an equal with God, or even worse, to try to get above God, to have that vantage point that we think would make, help us make sense of life, to define good and evil how we want to define it so that we can live how we want to live, all of those attempts are futile. They're vanity. It's vapor. It won't work. It will be an unsuccessful search or journey every single time. And you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be stressed. 
You're going to be freaking out all the time. And you're going to be possibly a person who is always manipulative because you're always trying to figure out how to gain leverage because you're insecure in life. So you're trying to figure out how to gain leverage over someone else, over your circumstances, so that you can try to find this elusive place in life where you feel completely secure and better than others or whatever it might be. That search won't lead you there. It'll only lead you to frustration. It will only lead you to a form of slavery. Our misguided attempts to control or master life are the essence of sin. That's what it means to be a sinner. That we have a bentness in us that causes us to try to always be trying to control and master life. To gain leverage. But it doesn't work. And so the invitation of Ecclesiastes, the invitation of the biblical story as a whole is hard. Trust. Trust. Put yourself at the mercy of God. Trust Him in such a way that even though you don't have all of the answers to life, you don't know why certain things have happened in your life and other things haven't happened, what we're trying to strive toward is a place in life where even in that uncertainty, even in that frustration, we're able to say, but I trust. I trust the record of Scripture. I trust God's track record with His people throughout history. And even though I can't always comprehend it or understand it, God is fundamentally good. I can trust Him because He does have that vantage point. He does have control and He's good. So, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that there were details about that, that rescue of the boys and their coach out of the cave that I didn't know about. And the most remar- remarkable being, do you know how they ultimately got them out of the cave? They actually had to sedate them with drugs. It, this is crazy. It's real. Like, when I was watching this, like, this is not, this isn't real. This isn't true. I looked it up. Sure enough, it's what happened. It reached a point where monsoon season was getting, it was about to kick in and get even worse. And so they had to to act in this window that they had. And so they were desperate. It was like now or never. And they are trying to train the boys over a few days on how to scuba dive. And I mean, it was like a, I want to say like a six hour trip, like to the back of the cave and like 12 hours total. Like this, it's mind blowing. And they realize that it's not going to work because if these boys panic underwater, it's going to be a bad situation. And so they come up with this idea, we're going to sedate them with drugs so that they're actually asleep. So one by one, they tie the boys to another diver. The diver like, drag, leads them along the way. The whole while, the boys are asleep, literally asleep. They don't even know they're being rescued. You know, it got to the point where they're like, we have to trust you that this will work. And the reality is, is that they didn't think it was going to work. Not the boys, but the divers and everyone involved. Because something like this obviously had never been done. This is kind of like what we have to do with God. Life feels so desperate at times because it is. Reality is fundamentally broken and we're in need of rescue whether we know it or not. Because, as I said, that brokenness is not just out there, it's inside of us. We need to be rescued. And we've already, look, like, let's just... 
let's just cut the crap, okay, to say it like that. You can't rescue yourself. I can't rescue myself. We already know that. We figured it out even though we don't want to admit it, but it's real and it's true. And the good news is that we don't have to because Jesus has. Jesus has gone to the back of the cave. And even though we were desperate, even though we didn't know if this was going to work, so to speak, Jesus said, trust me. I'm going to go through the dark passages for you. I'm going to fit through those crevices. I'm going to take on the muddy waters of the cross on your behalf so that I might deliver you safely through this world that is filled with fundamental brokenness. God's ways are mysterious, brothers and sisters. We don't know why he does one thing and why he doesn't do another. But guess what? The incarnation, God taking on human flesh, is part of those mysterious ways. And so even though there are all kinds of things that he does that we don't understand, we know when it comes to the heart of the biblical story and salvation, that if he was willing to take on human flesh, if he was willing to come into this world that he himself cursed because of sin, and he was willing, because this is what happens on the cross, to actually take that curse upon himself. If he was willing to do those mysterious things for our salvation, we can trust him with the whole of our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have gone through the dark passages, the crevices, the dark, muddy waters on our behalf. Give us faith and confidence to believe this, to trust you. We thank you that the invitation to us is that we don't have to try to gain this control over life that we actually just simply can't gain. And so help us to chill out. Help us to live by faith and to trust you. Pray in your name. Amen.